Hello, you're very welcome to another episode of Never Lick the Spoon. What a funny old time it's been since we last crossed paths in our previous episode. Since then, most of our workplaces, schools, gyms, even the pub has been shut. Oh, and now we are, dear listener, confined to our homes. Indeed, I'm speaking to you in my makeshift studio at home, underneath my duvet. In this episode, and for the next few at least, I've decided we should self-isolate in a COVID-free zone and hear about science and engineering advancements in other areas. It kind of has to be like this, as all the interviews I've recorded were done so before the outbreak. In this episode, we'll hear about carbon capture, mooted by some as a key tool in that other fight that humanity is facing right now, climate change. But what actually is carbon capture? The idea, euphemistically speaking at least, is that by putting a big old stopper on the top of chimneys of carbon belching power plants or other large emitters, you can stop the carbon being emitted into the atmosphere. The idea is, of course, a bit more complicated than that, but we'll get into all that knit and grit in good time. Once you've captured the carbon, what do you do with it all? One idea is to transport it back to where the fossil fuel which was burnt that produced the carbon originally came from, underground, where it can't escape back into the atmosphere. That's called carbon capture and storage, or as you might hear later, CCS. That's one, but you can make surprisingly useful stuff with the captured carbon too. More on that later. The idea of capturing carbon is gaining traction, as it means countries that have signed up to the Paris Climate Agreement, like the UK, can reduce their emissions while still keeping power plants that have many decades of active service to go and are costly to decommission in business. But it's courted controversy from certain parts, as it still means we rely on fossil fuels for some time to come. Europe's first educational carbon capture pilot plant is at Imperial College. Instead of being run by big multinational or governmental agencies, it's run by students. The -the state-of-the-art facility in the Department of Chemical Engineering uses chemical reactions to separate carbon dioxide from the other exhaust gases coming out of an imaginary power plant. I was lucky enough to get a guided tour with Dr. Colin Hale. He leads operations in the plant. Colin started by giving me a guided tour of his very fancy control room. So you join me here in what can only be described as a space age mission control room with the operator of the CCS pilot plant in Imperial, Dr. Colin Hale. Colin, how do you actually capture carbon? In this case, This is a pilot-scale carbon capture facility, so it would capture around 500 tonnes per year of carbon dioxide if it's running continuously. To put that in perspective a little bit, very roughly your carbon footprint is about 10 tonnes per person per year. So it would do equivalent to about the carbon footprint for around 50 people. This is a baby, actually. Full-size ones will be capturing around a million, million and a half tonnes of carbon dioxide per year. In our particular case, this type of process is used for preventing the carbon dioxide being released to atmosphere. So this is called post-combustion capture. In its basic terms, it's fairly straightforward, really. What we're doing is taking advantage of the properties of carbon dioxide when that gets wet. So when carbon dioxide gets wet, it becomes slightly acidic. If it becomes acidic, of course, you can use an alkaline solution to react with it to remove it from a mix of other gases. 
So in this very, very simplest terms, we've got an acid-base reaction occurring. A lot of the point for the process for us is about giving our students hands-on experience of operating the sorts of facility they're likely to use when they graduate. So it's really, for us, it's about the training bit because it's fine having the processes. You also need the people with the skill sets to be able to operate it. And I suppose the beauty of having a small pilot plant scale like you have here is that you can presumably tinker around with various different parts of the process in capturing the carbon. Is this going to be something that you could see being rolled out to say every carbon emitting power plant in the future? I think one of the key things to remember is that most governments have signed up under the Paris Agreement to reduce their carbon footprint. If you look at the global emissions though, by sort of 2050, if we carry on as we go in, it's predicted we'll be emitting around 90,000 million tonnes of CO2 per year, which is a big number to get your head around. Uh, if you work it out, it's about 1,000 tonnes a second being emitted. So, of course, fizzy drinks is not really going to solve the problem. It's um, a lot of McDonald's refills, however you look at stuff. And if we want to meet some of those quite, quite challenging targets, like net zero by 2050, for example, which the UK government recently committed to in law, then those are ambitious targets. So really we need a whole mix of things. Of course, renewables has got a big part to play. Nuclear's got a part to play. More energy efficiency in general for individuals and for processes has got a big part to play. A key aspect of that, though, will be carbon capture type processes. Because if you think about the way that we get most of our products day to day and our energy, there's a lot of heavy industry that can't just switch immediately across to, for example, using renewables. So carbon capture type processes have got a big part to play in that sector. Speaking of getting hands-on, shall we uh, exit mission control and get out into the galaxy beyond? Okay, so if you grab a hard hat lab coat and goggles, what we'll do is we'll go from the control room area and then into the plant area just beyond. So Colin, we're at the bottom of a four-storey maze of pipes, vessels, cylinders, vats. What's going on? Okay, so we're now on the ground floor of the carbon capture process. So this is equivalent in height to about three double-decker buses stacked on top of each other. And what we've got inside here are two main columns that go from the very bottom floor to the top floor. That's where we catch the carbon dioxide from other gases. So between those two main columns, we have a series of interconnecting pipes. And very roughly, the solution runs that we use to catch the carbon dioxide cycles in a figure of eight between those two columns. That carbon dioxide then gets trapped in the liquid, and we then pass that liquid from the bottom of that column through a heat exchanger to warm it up. And that then flows into the top of the other column, which runs at a much higher temperature, typically about 110, 115 degrees C, so a bit above the boiling point of water. In that second column, because of the temperature, the reaction reverses. That allows us to release the carbon dioxide from our solution in a controlled way. So the carbon dioxide will come off the top and we can then use it for other things. For the solution that comes from the bottom of that column, uh, we need to cool it down anyway so we can catch more carbon dioxide. So what we do is take that hot liquid, this released carbon dioxide, and cool it down on the other side of 
the heat exchanger that I'd mentioned so that we can cool it and we use that heat energy to warm up the cold stuff going into the top of our stripping column and basically we keep circulating our liquid in that figure of eight mode between those two columns. Colin, thank you very much. Before that ominous beeping sound gets any louder, uh, I think it's time for us to uh, to escape. <laughs> thank you very much. Okay, well, thank you for visiting the uh, carbon capture plant in chemical engineering. Colin Hale there, give me a tour of the carbon capture pilot plant at Imperial. But what to do with all the carbon that plants, like the one run by Colin and his students, capture? Well, work by another group of researchers suggests that it could help make mattresses. Yes, you heard me right. It's called Carbon Capture and Usage, or CCU. To find out more, I spoke to Dr. Anna Hankin. She's a lecturer, also in the Chemical Engineering Department of Imperial, who is looking at how we can use captured carbon to make stuff. She is the lead author of a recently released briefing paper that seeks to inform government and industry about the potential of how we can use captured carbon. Here's what she had to say. So CO2, as you probably know, is a greenhouse gas. And currently, all the conventional, most of the conventional power stations that we have, which run either on coal or natural gas, they emit a lot of the CO2 into the atmosphere. Uh, so what we could do uh, with the technology that Colin just shown you in, in the Department of Chemical Engineering is we can uh, capture the CO2, but then we have some choices of what we can do with it. So we can either store it underground or we can do something useful with it. And one of the simple things you can imagine is, uh, say, a bottle of fizzy water or Coke. So that will have had CO2 pumped into it. So it's carbonated. But that's not a very um, good CO2 mitigation strategy because as soon as you open the bottle, that CO2 just comes back out. So there are more sensible things that we can do with CO2. Uh, that will keep it away from the atmosphere f- for a long amount of time, and we're talking maybe decades or centuries. So Colin's fizzy drinks idea is probably not a runner. So what does Anna suggest is a good idea to make with our captured carbon? So there are a number of different options, quite a few actually. In our briefing paper, we looked at just a few different examples. Uh, one of those examples is plastic. You can incorporate CO2 directly into a plastic, such as polyurethane. And polyurethane, even if you're not aware of it, you come across it all the time. You get it in, in insulation, which is used in houses and fridges, in, your, in the mattress on your bed, children's toys, it's everywhere. Plastics are made from petrochemicals, but you can substitute a fraction of those petrochemicals with CO2 instead uh, and get a very similar product as a result. That all sounds very interesting, doesn't it? However, in reality, the UK can store much more carbon than can be put to use. So when does it make more sense to actually use the captured carbon to make stuff than just sticking it underground? So imagine a map of the UK and you still have quite a large number of uh, fossil fuel Uh, power stations uh, distributed all over the place. So some are on the coast, some are inland, but all of the geological storage space for the uh, of the UK is actually offshore. So a lot of it is in the North Sea. So whatever CO2 you make in the UK, you need to then transport out to these geological storage sites offshore. So you can imagine that it's easier first to collect the CO2 
from the coastal areas that are closest to those geological storage sites. And it's already going to take quite a lot of long time to develop just that infrastructure. So you can imagine that some of the inland emitters aren't going to be targeted for, for some time and CO2 will continue to go out into the atmosphere there. So what we're proposing is to use those sites to investigate some of these CCU processes that are looking promising. And that way, CCU will not uh, compete directly with CCS. And you can imagine that you could pursue both of those in pal- parallel. And so they could complement each other with CCU being a more short-term solution. And once the CCS infrastructure has been built, that would then take over as the predominant mitigation strategy. And lastly, the question I know you're all dying me to ask, what needs to happen for our mattresses to be made out of recycled carbon? So uh, a general recommendation in this briefing paper, and it's also the recommendation we gave to the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy uh, when we pitched this briefing paper to them, is that we need to make some more effort into scaling up some of these more promising technologies. So from laboratory scale to pilot plant scale uh, to a scale where they could be tested on real industrial sites using real CO2 that has come out of power stations. So that would be the best way to demonstrate the effectiveness of the technology and it will also provide us with data based on which we can make accurate life cycle analysis and techno-economic analysis which will tell us how effective these processes are. And this challenge will develop and deploy low carbon technologies and enabling infrastructure in one or more heavily industrialized areas uh, of the UK. So we're talking about uh, low carbon clusters and the aim is to pick an area of the UK and make it into a low carbon cluster by 2030. So presumably you would need to deploy multiple technologies that allow you to achieve this goal. And it would be very nice if a CCU process, for example, converting CO2 to polyurethanes uh, would be one of them. And that was Dr. Anna Hankins speaking to me there. We wish her and her team all the best in the future. Incidentally, you can read Anna's briefing paper on the Institute for Molecular Science and Engineering's website. Well, that's it for another episode. We'll be back very soon with more developments in science and engineering. You've been listening to Never Lick the Spoon. We're a podcast from the Institute for Molecular Science and Engineering at Imperial College London. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe wherever you're listening to us now. Until next time, as always, never lick the spoon!